Teams will resume moving contaminated waste today from the site of a freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, after a brief weekend pause. It's Monday, February 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the White House pushes back on the campaign promises made by congressional Republicans to investigate President Biden. Look, um, I think the American public wants to move on and get things done for them. Also, with Governor Healy expected to unveil her first budget this week, a look at what it might indicate about her plans for the state. It's $50 billion, and budgets are moral documents, and that's a big chunk of change, right, to set your priorities. And this hour, the link between the time teenagers spend on social media and their body image. Cloudy today in the 30s, snow overnight, about three to six inches expected by tomorrow. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The EPA says that teams can resume shipping contaminated waste away from the site of a toxic train derailment. The shipments were paused after lawmakers in Michigan and Texas raised concerns about waste being disposed in their states. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports. Norfolk Southern was in sole charge of transporting contaminated soil and liquid away from the site, but the EPA began reviewing the railroad's safety protocols after Michigan and Texas officials complained they were blindsided by news that the hazardous waste would be dumped in their states. U.S. EPA Region 5 Administrator Deborah Shore says truckloads of the soil are now in Michigan and thousands of gallons of firefighting liquid in Texas. That material was already vetted and it is at those facilities, but they are not currently accepting anymore. We're exploring to see whether they have capacity. She says new shipments of the contaminated waste head for two sites in Ohio today. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. The National Weather Service is warning of dangerous winds in the southern plains today. Some winds could gust between 80 and 110 miles per hour. Damaging winds have already struck parts of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. There are several reports of tornadoes in Oklahoma and damage to homes and other buildings. At least two tornadoes have been reported in Kansas. In Michigan, about 130,000 customers still don't have electricity, according to the tracking site poweroutage.us. And a fresh storm is moving in. Josh Pachorek is with the utility Consumers Energy, and he says repair crews are preparing for new outages. Making sure that our crews will be ready to go. So as we finish that restoration effort along the uh, uh, the southern counties that were impacted last week, we're going to be ready to go to serve any of those areas that are impacted by Monday's storm. Farther east, New England continues to get winter weather and heavy snow. There are winter weather cautions posted from Pennsylvania to Maine. Another powerful earthquake has hit southern Turkey, killing at least one person and wounding nearly 70 today. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the tremor comes three weeks after a major earthquake and aftershocks devastated the region, killing more than 48,000 people. Turkey's Disaster Management Agency says the quake was centered near the town of Yeşilyurt. The town's mayor said there were buildings damaged in the major earthquake three weeks ago that collapsed in this latest one. Rescue crews were dispatched to the scene. Officials say the February 6th quake killed more than 48,000 people in southern Turkey and northern Syria. More than 170,000 buildings were damaged in Turkey. The Disaster Management Agency says the number of aftershocks that have hit the earthquake region is approaching 10,000. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adana, Turkey.
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A snowstorm is expected to hit tonight and into early tomorrow. The National Weather Service says we could see three to six inches in Boston. Worcester could get up to eight inches of snow. The heaviest is expected to fall overnight. We'll have more on the forecast in a moment. A landlord trade group is suing the city of Boston for emails related to Mayor Michelle Wu's new rent control proposal. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the suit accuses the city of shielding records about how the policy was formed. Wu's proposal would restrict rent increases to inflation and exempt small owner-occupied buildings and new buildings for 15 years. It was crafted by an advisory committee of renter advocates, landlords, and developers. But the Cambridge-based group Mass Landlord says the exemptions favor big developers. Executive Director Doug Quattrochi says that's why they've requested the city's emails, to see how much influence developers had on the final policy. We've got this whole dog and pony show about how we're trying to help people, but um, the origins of the, the proposal are really confusing and unclear and seem to favor developers above renters and landlords. A city spokesperson calls the lawsuit an attempt by special interests to block rent control. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Former Massachusetts Senator John Kerry says he plans to stay in his role with the Biden administration through at least November. Kerry currently serves as the nation's top international climate envoy. He tells the Boston Globe there is still a lot he needs to get done. That includes the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai, which begins in late November. Boston city officials are calling on the mayor to release more information in the case of a missing Latina woman. Reina Carolina Morales Rojas has been missing since last November. City councilors sent a letter to Mayor Michelle Wu. In it, they write that their Latino constituents don't feel like their concerns are being taken seriously by Boston police. Wu's office says it plans to update people as information becomes available. Restaurants in central Massachusetts are hoping to get a boost from Worcester Restaurant Week. It kicks off today. At least 40 restaurants are taking part, and despite its name, the event runs for two weeks. Paul Giorgio is publisher of Pulse Magazine, which is the creator and producer of Worcester's Restaurant Week. It gives them an opportunity to go to a restaurant they may not be able to afford on an ongoing basis. So they get to try some of these uh, other restaurants and get a great deal in a great meal. Giorgio expects about 40,000 diners to take part this year. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. The Bruins will go for their seventh straight win tonight as they visit the Edmonton Oilers. The Celtics will try to run their winning streak up to four games tonight as they visit the New York Knicks. Increasing clouds today. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Snow begins after midnight tonight. The low will be in the 20s. Snow through a good part of the day tomorrow. Some of us could see it end as rain. Three to four inches expected in Boston and east of Interstate 95. Six to eight inches in Worcester. The high tomorrow will be in the 30s. It'll be dry on Wednesday, though. It's 27, 28 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Since Russia invaded Ukraine over a year ago, the U.S. and other allies have imposed more than 11,000 sanctions on Russia. That makes Russia the most sanctioned country in the world. They're intended to weaken the Kremlin's ability to finance the war. But with no peace in sight, the effectiveness of all those sanctions remains in doubt. Rachel Ziamba is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New... for a new American security where she studies economics and security. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we're now in the second year of this war. Russia's President Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin shows no signs of backing off. Are sanctions working? So sanctions are having an economic effect. They are increasing costs for Russia, but they are not and we're never really going to be a silver bullet to uh, on their own bring the war to an end. Um, And that's the situation we find ourselves in um, right now, that they are part of a package along with military support and the situation on the ground. And that's going to be, I think, a difficult message for U.S. and allies to keep delivering. Now, we're in the second year. And like I said, it doesn't feel like Putin has shown any signs of backing off, despite the combined efforts, the military aid and these sanctions. Is there are there lessons learned? Is there something the U.S. and allies are going to do differently in the year ahead? Yes, I think there are a lot of lessons learned and maybe some lessons uh, relearned, right, that a large country like Russia that supplies natural resources that the that sort of are important to the world is harder to sanction. They're harder to sanction when countries like China, but also Turkey and the UAE and India um, Mm -hmm. want to buy some of those resources. Um, And it's also challenging if we're not ready, if the sanctioning coalition wasn't ready to put uh, some pain at home on the line. Um, one of the major things that cor- that sh- that we only that the sanctioning coalition just started to do um, a couple of months ago was to actually target energy in a meaningful way. So that's current energy production. So we will we are seeing some impact of the European embargo um, and and the associated price cap. I think we're also going to start seeing more measures that target uh, intermediary countries um, that. Tra- try to limit Russia and Russia's ability to buy the items it needs to uh, rebuild and restock its military. Mm-hmm. But that enforcement phase isn't easy, even for a country with good intelligence and the like, uh, as, as the U.S. does. And so I think we're going to see um, both more sanctions, but we'll also continue to see some degree of Russian uh, Russian uh, survival through this. And so I fear the ba- my baseline is a continued uh, Uh, not only sort of war, but uh, economic um, sort of attrition of more enforcement, uh, cracking down a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. But I do think that there is more more commitment. Um, And that's going to be something I think the question mark will also come down to um, how countries like China respond in this environment. How much is China responsible for propping up Russia's economy in the few seconds we have left? Sure. So it's uh, so so China um, is is the biggest supplier of items to Russia. I haven't yet seen evidence that they are directly providing lethal support, uh, but they are providing semiconductors and other chips, and that is something you know they're not cutting them off, um, and that is uh, that that is 
part and parcel of what is helping keep Russia, um, uh, help keeping Russia um, right. engaged. Rachel Ziamba with the Center for a New American Security. Thank you so much. Thank you. A lot more of us are scanning the skies for balloons and other identified aerial objects now, but high-flying orbs aren't a totally new phenomenon. For years, China has been quietly developing its capacity in high-altitude balloons. Now, the objective is to compete with countries like the U.S. in aerial surveillance. NPR's Emily Fang explains why. In March 2018, state officials and key state scientists gathered in Beijing to celebrate the creation of a new research initiative called the Honghu Project, meaning swan in Chinese. The project's director is an aerospace engineer named Xiang Yibing, who also oversees China's first domestic satellite system. Except Honghu focused on creating high-altitude, so-called near-space balloons, Balloons that can float up to 40, 50 to 65,000 feet high. The beauty of a balloon is it flies above uh, what's known as a safe navigational space. This is Carl Schuster, a former director of operations at the U.S. Pacific Command's Joint Intelligence Center. A balloon drifting in the wind at 10 to 20 miles an hour at that altitude, you wouldn't traditionally think of that as a threat. And they're also cheap. And that combination makes balloons more attractive to militaries. It is unclear whether Honghu's research was incorporated in the Chinese balloon shot down over the United States in February. But the project shows China's renewed interest in this low-tech form of technology that's been around for centuries. Now, these balloons can be repurposed for higher tech needs. For example, scooping up communication signals. Or even, Schuster says, gathering data to help guide next-generation hypersonic weapons. When you're launching a ballistic missile, the meteorological information about where you launch is probably the most important uh, meteorological data you can cover. But a hypersonic weapon flies along the edge of the stratosphere at altitudes of 100 to 120,000 feet. The balloon's giving you that data. Analysts say even collecting simple meteorological data from balloons can have military applications. That's why one Chinese military editorial declared last year that, quote, near space vehicles have increasingly become the new darling of long range and rapid strike weapons. Balloons are a fraction of the cost of satellites. And there are certain advantages that come from a platform that's relatively much closer, that one of the benefits is that you can keep it in one spot. This is Matthew Turbin a former National Security Council director for China, explaining how hovering balloons can collect images close to the ground, making them another tool of many in the Chinese government's ever-expanding surveillance toolkit. There is no one thing that is the magic button. It's a collection of capabilities and things to put together a full picture. It's the integration of all that different types of intelligence together that provides you know, actionable information Meanwhile, China says the U.S. is the one doing the aerial spying. A spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry accused the U.S. of flying its own surveillance vehicles, quote, more than 10 times in a Chinese airspace since January 2022, an allegation the U.S. has resolutely denied. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan.
Chicago voters are heading to the polls tomorrow to decide if the city's current mayor should serve another term. Yeah, Lori Lightfoot made history four years ago as the first openly gay and first black woman to lead the country's third largest city. Now she faces a stiff re-election battle and could be the first mayor in decades to not get a second term. WBEZ's government and politics reporter Mariah Wolfel has been covering the race. Um, Mariah, she made history four years ago when she was elected. She beat out, uh, what, more than a dozen people, but now she's in a similar situation. But since typically the city's incumbent mayor wins re-election, why is Lightfoot facing so many challengers? Right. Well, like many other big city mayors, Lightfoot faced a really unprecedented set of challenges in her first four years in office, elected in 2019, soon after a hit with a global pandemic. She was elected as a political outsider, as a reformer who was going to put an, an end to longstanding political corruption in Chicago. When submitting her paperwork to run this time, she joked that she'd give this note of caution to her 2019 self. Beware of a global pandemic. <laughs> her term has been marked by pandemic era challenges, you know, uh, public disputes with the teachers union over when to send kids back to school, with police over vaccine mandates. But I think most of all, people are lining up to replace her because she's dealt with an increase in crime that, you know, many cities across the country have grappled with that her opponents say they can do a better job of fixing. Right, now, Chicago is a big city, third largest city, but largely a segregated one, too. Um, there's a mix, though, of black, Latino and white candidates. How is race playing a role in this election? Sure. The main point here is that there are seven black candidates, one white, one Latino in the race. So some strategists fear that the black communities vote to want to see someone in office who will represent that community's issues. Of course, those issues are diverse, but that that vote will be split among those seven candidates, leading to, you know, two others who might not have broad support getting into what's to be a likely runoff election. Um, there's also one only one white candidate, like I said, Paul Vallis, and he's just just one of two candidates running to the right of Lightfoot politically. He's a Democrat, but more conservative than her. And he has a very clear and uncrowded lane with a tough on crime message. Um, Delmarie Cobb is a veteran political strategist and said that's a factor in his front runner status this time. The racial part of this is that whites will galvanize around Paul Vallis. And we've already seen that the wealthy Republican establishment is pouring money into his campaign right and left. Racial politics has a long history here in Chicago, and it's been on full display this election, too. And we've talked about how Lightfoot is a first for the city. But if she does not win the race, she would join the city's only other female mayor. And that's Jane Byrne in the 80s in not winning a reelection bid. Has, has being a female mayor been at all a factor for her so far? Well, I think Lightfoot would say absolutely yes. Um, it's been a hurdle for her reelection fight. Um, she started this campaign saying to a crowd of people at a bakery on Chicago's South Side that she's a black woman in America. People are betting against her every day, but that doesn't mean she's not ready for a fight. She's certainly had some major accomplishments, maybe some she hasn't gotten enough credit for, um, but she also has some very real things to answer for. She's reneged on a lot of progressive campaign promises that people are upset about to reform the police in a more meaningful way, um, create a Department of Environment to prioritize ending environmental racism in the city, pushing for an elected school board, things that, that voters want to see her take on. That was WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, a new study is shedding light on how social media affects how teens see their own bodies. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is in Studio 2. So much to talk about. On the top of the list, her proposal to cap Boston rent increases. But there's also a controversial school bus contract, a new night czar, loss of services at Mass and Cass, and more. It's Mondays with the Mayor on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It'll grow increasingly cloudy today and we'll have a high of only 32. Tonight, a low around 29. Snow overnight with up to 4 to 6 inches of accumulation around Boston. Areas around Worcester may see up to 8. Tomorrow, more snow in the morning, maybe another inch or so. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 37. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston at 720. There's some music to get you moving on a Monday morning, and it's just a taste of what you'll hear next week at WBUR City Space for Consalsa Night. Jose Maso will be there to talk about his show, Consalsa, which has aired on WBUR for nearly 50 years. There will also be dancing and food. Join us Friday, March 10th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. It's not uncommon for teens and college-age people to spend two to three hours a day on platforms like Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. What's surprising is how many are willing to cut back and what happens when they do. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. There are not too many college students who are able to turn their thesis project into a randomized controlled trial published in a peer-reviewed journal But for Helen Tai, her focus on how social media can influence body image and appearance came at just the right time. Her hunch was that many people were being negatively influenced by social media. That's what she experienced personally. What I noticed when I was engaging in social media was that I couldn't help but compare myself, whether it be posts from celebrities or people within my social network. They looked prettier, healthier, more fit. That led to feelings of inferiority. 
Now a doctoral student in psychology, she wanted to determine if others felt this too. So she and her collaborators recruited a couple of hundred volunteers, aged 17 to 25, all of whom had experienced anxiety, who were in the habit of using social media about two to three hours each day. The volunteers were divided into two groups. The first group agreed to slash their time on social media. We asked them to reduce their social media to 60 minutes a day for three weeks. The other group continued to use social media with no restrictions. All of the participants agreed to share their smartphone's daily screen time tracker so researchers could keep tabs, and they also agreed to take surveys that asked a bunch of questions about body image and appearance. So an example uh, would be a statement like, I wish I looked better, or I'm looking as nice as I'd like to, or I'm pretty happy about the way I look. The survey was given at the beginning of the study, and again after just three weeks of limiting social media. Ty says in such a short period, she actually documented a change. What our study showed was that participants who were asked to reduce their daily social media use significantly improved in appearance and weight esteem. It's not that their weight or appearance changed, but how they felt about their looks and their bodies did change for the better. It's not a surprise, says Lexi Kite, a body image expert and co-director of the nonprofit Beauty Redefined. She says what's so anxiety-provoking is that social media platforms are full of body-centric images, and people can alter or airbrush the way they look. You can use filters that come up on TikTok very easily to add makeup, curves, a tan, slim yourself down, take away all pores, wrinkles, hair. Scrolling this kind of content can have a powerful influence on teens and especially young women at a vulnerable time when they're trying to figure out who they are, what they stand for, and what gives them power. So Instagram and TikTok take the harmful cultural messages we've all grown up with, primarily that women are most valued for their beauty and sex appeal, and not only reinforces those messages, but magnifies them to a level that cements those value systems into their brains. And, you know, kids can't escape it. Especially if all their peers are using social media. Lexi Kite says cutting back makes a lot of sense. And another strategy is to minimize body-centric content in your feed. Be incredibly mindful as you scroll of how each creator, each image, each account makes you feel. If a post makes you feel uncomfortable or less than, make a choice to mute or unfollow. You are the only one who can curate your feed, and the platforms surely won't. They are pushing. The algorithm is pushing body-centric and idealized content to you because that's what sells. So try to zero in on alternative content from users who share things that align with your values and interests. Kite says if you explore, there's a lot of positive content to engage with. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to shorten the gap between cancer research and cancer care. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. And from the American Lung Association, with support from Sanofi. They're working to raise awareness about RSV, the leading cause of hospitalizations in all babies under one. Learn more at lung.org slash RSV. 
Nearly 60 bodies have been recovered from a migrant shipwreck in the Mediterranean. Many more are feared dead. As NPR's Silvia Pajoli reports, 80 survived when their rickety vessel sank off the Italian coast. The front pages of Italian papers today carry large photos of lines of bodies covered in white sheets along a windswept beach in the southern region of Calabria. Many of the dead are children. TV showed images of slivers of wood floating on the waves, and wreckage of the vessel was spread along many miles of shoreline. The migrant boat ran into rough waters at dawn Sunday and broke apart after crashing along a reef just 150 yards from the coast. The migrants came mostly from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Somalia, according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Humanitarian groups are offering psychological assistance to survivors, many of whom made it to the beach on their own. They said the vessel had left the Turkish port of Izmir on Thursday. The humanitarian group Doctors Without Borders said there were probably a total of 177 on board, meaning many migrants are still missing. Italian state TV reported two suspected traffickers, one Turkish, one Pakistani, have been taken into custody. This is the first major shipwreck since Italy's radical right government took office in October. Under Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, the government has cracked down on humanitarian ships, imposing tough restrictions with violators facing stiff fines and confiscation of rescue vessels. It's a law the United Nations says imperils lives. Italian President Sergio Mattarella called on the European Union to finally take responsibility with a common migration and asylum policy that shares the burden of a phenomenon that he said cannot be resolved by one country alone. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Russia's war on Ukraine has strained the global food supply, but experts say it hasn't been as bad as expected. We look at why. And the White House's strategy to thwart Republican plans to investigate everything from Hunter Biden to the situation at the southern border. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There's so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Environmental Protection Agency says Norfolk Southern will resume transporting contaminated waste away from East Palestine, Ohio today, the site of this month's fiery freight train derailment. Liquid and solid waste will be moved to two sites within the state. One is an injection well, the other is an incinerator. The removal was suspended after officials in two other states complained about waste shipments being sent there. NPR's Marie Andrusevich has more. The EPA says it is now providing oversight for the disposal of the hazardous waste, an effort previously managed solely by the rail company. While EPA Regional Administrator Deborah Shore says she believes the disposal sites used by Norfolk Southern were up to standard, the EPA is changing course in response to concerned residents in those states, Michigan and Texas. Snow and ice are an issue today for millions of people in the U.S. The National Weather Service has posted advisories and warnings in more than a dozen states from the West Coast to New England. Blizzard conditions are expected again today in parts of the Sierra Nevada in California. 
A technical problem halted this morning's attempted launch of a SpaceX capsule with four crew members aboard to the International Space Station from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The next earliest launch try is tomorrow. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Worcester police start using body cameras today. 300 officers who have the most contact with the public will wear the devices. More now from WBUR's Dave Faniff. Worcester Police Lieutenant Sean Murtha says each officer being outfitted got about 16 hours of training. Murtha says at the end of each officer's shift, all the video will be uploaded to a storage site on the cloud. He says this will increase public trust and provide a benefit to officers. Our training division is going to have access to this footage. They're going to be able to watch the videos and see what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. Also, self-evaluation by the officers. Just like athletes like to watch their footage after the game, the officers can watch exactly what they did and make adjustments. Bertha says video involving a crime will be stored indefinitely while everything else will be deleted after three and a half years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The Essex County Sheriff's Department is lowering the minimum age for correctional officers. Starting today, people as young as 19 can apply for a job. The minimum age used to be 21. The sheriff says his office is making the change because it's having a hard time finding enough correctional officers. He says it's a problem other departments are having as well. Governor Maura Healey plans to designate more money to local aid in the budget she's filing this week. The 2024 budget will propose over $8 billion for local aid programs. State officials say that's the largest increase since 1999. The money will go to programs focusing on education and cities and towns. This is the first budget Healey is filing as governor. We'll have more on what the budget says about Healey's political priorities coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The Celtics will wrap up their short road trip tonight as they play the New York Knicks. The Bruins will be in Edmonton tonight to skate with the Oilers at spring training in Florida yesterday. The Red Sox beat the Rays 7-6. The Sox will play the Twins this afternoon. Clouds move in throughout the day today, and it will be cold with a high of only 32. Tonight, temperatures only fall a little to a low of 29. Overnight, snow. By tomorrow morning, up to 4 to 6 inches possible around Boston and up to 8 inches in the Worcester area. The snow continues into tomorrow, and throughout tomorrow, we may get another inch. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 37. Right now, it's 28 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Experts on global food security sounded the alarm when Russia first invaded Ukraine a year ago. Food prices could surge worldwide because Ukraine and Russia are such big producers of wheat and other foods. 
But the very worst predictions of global hunger have not come to pass. NPR Global Health and Development Correspondent Nareet Eisenman is with us to share what went well. So Nareet, good morning. Hi, good morning. Before we get to the good news, why was there so much concern about food prices when the invasion first started? Yeah. So first off, there's this outsized role that Russia and Ukraine play in the world's food supply. Together, they provide a third of the world's wheat. And they're also major sources of fertilizer, cooking oil, feed grains. And that's particularly significant for countries in the Middle East and Africa. But on top of this, Russia invaded at a time when food prices were already at historically high levels due to previous droughts and bad harvests in the U.S. and other countries. So there wasn't a lot of wiggle room to deal with a sudden drop off in supply. Yeah. And at first, the impact was actually pretty severe, right? Absolutely. I talked to Joseph Glauber. He's a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. Let's take a listen. The first couple of months, prices were quite high and quite volatile. If you were to look at wheat futures, they had jumped almost 60%. Corn and soybeans were up 15 to 20% in those first week or so, but it could have been so much worse. And he says that's because pretty soon prices started to fall as it became clear that the upcoming spring wheat harvest in a lot of countries was going to be quite strong. Harvests in the United States and Canada bounced back, but the really big bumper crop was in Russia. They just got lucky. Okay, but Russia had all these sanctions, but those sanctions didn't apply to foodstuffs like wheat, right? Exactly. And then in August, Turkey, Russia, and Ukraine hammered out an agreement that, though imperfect, has mostly allowed Ukraine to resume exporting its wheat through ports in the Black Sea. And Ukraine still has wheat to export? Well, Right off the bat, they had this wheat that they'd already harvested before the war started. And then in terms of the planting and reaping after the war began, it is down 30 to 35 percent. But it's a testament to the grit of Ukrainian farmers that they've still been able to harvest a substantial amount. Mm. That said, this Black Seaport agreement expires next month. So a key question is whether it will be renewed. Okay, so what can we expect for global food prices this year then? Well, this pre-invasion level of food prices that we're currently at is still a historical high. And there are already some major ongoing hunger crises in places like Yemen, the Horn of Africa. So we're kind of still in this precarious situation where if just one thing goes wrong, a bad harvest somewhere, a worsening twist to the war in Ukraine, food prices could still really spike. NPR Global Health and Development Correspondent Nareet Eisenman. Thank you so much, Nareet. You're welcome. The day after the midterms, President Biden was a bit dismissive when he was asked about Republican plans to investigate everything from the Afghanistan withdrawal to his son Hunter's business dealings. Look, um, I think the American public wants us to move on and get things done for them. But behind the scenes, his top aides were well on the way to building a team of about two dozen lawyers, strategists, and Capitol Hill veterans with investigations experience. They now meet regularly in an ornate suite that, in an earlier era, was used by the Secretary of War. Yes, the White House Investigations War Room literally works out of the War Room. The team has been trading letters with House committees while casting the investigations as unserious. Ian Sams is a spokesperson. You know, unfortunately, a lot of what we've seen so far have been political stunts and hearings 
going after things that the American public doesn't care about, but we are committed to working in good faith with Congress. The White House has been drawing attention to statements like this one from House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer on Fox News. There are a lot of questions that Joe Biden's going to have to answer with respect to his son and his brother's influence peddling that's happened over the past decade. So uh, all of this together, I've put the odds that Joe Biden even seeking the Democrat nomination very, very low. For the White House, clips like this feed into their message that these investigations are stunts. And that message is being amplified by outside groups. But House Republicans? They're focused on bogus investigations to smear President Biden and his family. Why? That will help frame up the 2024 race. When that I last voice was Jim Jordan, President chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, in an ad from the Congressional Integrity Project. It's a group that does not disclose its donors. When there are hearings, they flood inboxes with talking points, slamming Republican committee members. Kyle Herrig is the group's executive director. We wake up every morning and call attention to their lies and to their motivations. Beyond that, we are doing opposition research to call attention to their hypocrisy. Folks like James Comer, Jim Jordan, the people running these investigations. If this sounds like brass knuckles politics, it is. David Brock is a veteran of these sorts of partisan battles. He leads another outside group that has sprung up to defend Biden called Facts First USA. A group like ours can say and do things that the White House won't, can't, shouldn't say or do. Officially, the White House isn't endorsing these groups or their work, but they also aren't disavowing them. The risks from congressional investigations are real, says Eric Schultz, who dealt with probes for the Obama administration. If there are hints of corruption or scandal or impropriety, that will undermine the president's ability to stay in the good graces of the electorate. Schultz was part of the team responding to investigations that became household names, like Benghazi, Fast and Furious, and Solyndra. And he's a little jealous Biden has this outside air cover that Obama didn't have. What we saw, though, was that the right-wing ecosystem has enough horsepower that even nonsense can get traction. The White House would be well advised to cooperate with the investigations, says James Barnett from the law firm Steptoe & Johnson. He was the top Republican lawyer with the committee investigating Solyndra a decade ago. Republicans can hold hearings on anything they want with any witnesses they want. <laughs> and if you're not at the table, then you're going to be eaten for dinner. Polls indicate many Americans are skeptical of these investigations. The White House strategy is to reinforce that whenever possible. And the challenge for congressional Republicans is to prove them wrong. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we preview Governor Maura Healey's first state budget proposal and look at what it says about her priorities for Massachusetts. And in our next hour, marking the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee by activists with the American Indian Movement. 
In your forecast, we'll have increasing clouds throughout the day today with a high in the 30s. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says snow should move in late tonight. It's a little bit of everything out there. The wintry mix found mostly north and west of Boston. It's light and will taper through midday, but expect tough travel and slick spots on untreated surfaces. The temperatures will actually drop this afternoon into the 20s north of the city, even in Boston to below freezing later today. Then another round of light sleet and freezing rain arrives 8 to 10 p.m. It only lasts a few hours, but that will mean continued slippery. That was the wrong soundbite. We'll uh, give you your forecast here. It'll grow cloudy today. We'll have temperatures in the low 30s, upper 20s tonight, then overnight and throughout the day tomorrow. Snow will have two, one to two inches on Cape Cod, three to stick, six inches for much of eastern Mass, including Boston. And the region around Worcester could get up to eight inches. Watch out for slick roads and reduced visibility. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilston at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Now through March 17th, amrep.org. Industrial businesses are finding it harder to find space in greater Boston. That's according to a report by the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. It found that since 2011, greater Boston has lost almost 11 million square feet of built industrial space. Most of it went to housing. Jesse Partridge Guerrero worked on the report. She calls it inefficient to sacrifice one industry for another. If the region builds all of this great new housing, but our industrial jobs are gone from the region, then the workers are forced to either drive long commutes outside of the region, or they may just lose those jobs and have to find lower paying jobs closer to home. The report found 96% of the Boston area's industrial space was occupied in 2021. That's up from 89% 10 years ago. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spinoff of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox business insurance experts. This is NPR. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey will release her first state budget recommendation later this week. It's expected to be more than $50 billion. It's also the opening salvo in the give and take between the executive and legislative branches over funding the state government. As WBUR's Steve Brown reports, the governor's plan will also preview her agenda for the next fiscal year. A worker mixes up a bucket of drywall compound at a 72-unit senior housing project in Holbrook. The three-story structure is what's called a passive house, using a design aimed at being super energy efficient with a smaller ecological footprint than traditional buildings. The quasi-state agency Massachusetts Clean Energy Center provided $270,000 towards funding this building. The group's chief program officer, Galen Nelson, hopes it serves as a pilot project to demonstrate that this type of construction is feasible. What pilot projects do is they really help the private sector experiment and innovate and try new approaches. The Clean Energy Center was singled out by Governor Healy in her inaugural address as the type of innovative program that deserves further state investment. 
That shout-out was welcome news for Nelson and his colleagues. I think that Governor Healy understands that we need to make investments now to figure out how to decarbonize the wide variety of buildings that we have across this Commonwealth and to experiment so that we can reduce the cost of that transition, um, so we can increase the pace of that transition and make it easy for everyone. And Healy's chief budget writer, Administration and Finance Secretary Matthew Gorkowitz, says the governor's proposal will include unprecedented levels of funding for the agency. I think we are looking at uh, the Clean Energy Center as being a key player in the strategy around offshore wind, as well as addressing uh, some of the climate priorities that the governor and lieutenant governor have. And as a result, they will, in fact, you know, there will be investments in, in that area. Meeting the state's carbon reduction goal isn't the administration's only budget priority. The governor wants to launch and fund Mass Reconnect, a program to provide free community college to students over 25 who don't have a college degree. Nate McKinnon of the Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges says similar programs in Michigan and Tennessee are having great success. I think that if we find a way to recognize the value of not necessarily everyone having a four-year bachelor's degree, but everyone having some form of post-secondary education and training that allows them to have a job in the workforce uh, where they can write their own ticket. The program can also benefit Massachusetts employers looking to fill jobs, according to Administration and Finance Secretary Gorkowitz. So this is an opportunity for people who are perhaps mid-career, um, who have uh, gotten a start in, in their professional career, and realize that you know an associate's degree is something that would help them advance in their current job, or to redirect them to other jobs and other opportunities where employers certainly have a need, but the skill sets aren't aligned. Gorkowitz says affordability will be the major theme of the Healy budget. He says the proposal will address the concerns of families in Massachusetts who are struggling with the high cost of living, housing, and child care. Marie Francis Rivera of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center hopes the governor's spending plan will demonstrate Healy's pledge to prioritize housing and early education. The state budget is one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal. It's $50 billion. And, you know, budgets are moral documents, and that's a, a big chunk of change, right, to set your priorities. Rivera also says she is eager to see the details of Healy's tax reform package, which is expected to be released this week in tandem with her budget. It seems that there's interest in moving forward tax credits that are really going to benefit families, are going to benefit young people. We're excited to see that. Some of our concerns would be in you know, tax policies that would really disproportionately benefit wealthy individuals like the estate tax. Healy's budget and tax reform proposals are just the first step in the annual dance between the governor and the legislature over the state's finances. Over the next few months, the House and Senate will put forth their proposals that will support their priorities, priorities which may or may not align with those of the governor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. So I can't resist. Steve says the annual dance between the governor and the legislature, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, so are we talking waltz, salsa, flamenco? <laughs> what What's is the best it? analogy? Exactly. Yeah. I'm very curious how we would score that. So. <laughs> 
All right. Sorry. It's Monday morning. Little squirrely, but very important show today for Radio Boston because Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is here in studio. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, there's a lot to talk about. You yeah. had, you know, Walt spot on earlier this morning about mass landlords uh, lawsuit over the rent. Um, she calls it stabilization. Most people call it rent control plan. Lots there. There's school bus stuff going on, concerns about failure to serve students with disabilities appropriately. Um, she's got a new night czar, so there's yeah. a lot around the economy and dining. So it's, a, I think, a big agenda. We'll talk with her for the whole show. Wow. Okay. Sounds good. How was yeah. your weekend? Uh, it was fine. Thank you. Low-key, really just... Rupa, how much snow are we going to get tomorrow? This is the big question on my mind. Four to six inches in Boston, up to eight inches around Worcester. I know. I know. I know. I apologize. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. WBUR supporters include Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. A new experience at Universal Studios Hollywood takes you inside one of the world's most beloved video game franchises, Mario Brothers. During a sneak preview of Super Nintendo World, I took a spin on the new Mario Kart ride. So the steering wheel has little buttons. I'm just shooting randomly, trying to score as many points as possible. Now it looks like we're gonna really enter Mario Kart, we are! The ride whirls you through vibrant Mario Brothers landscapes and propels you toward adversaries that are all very familiar to gamers. All right, now we're entering, could this be a castle of some kind? It looks like it. Ooh, is that Bowser? I whiz past symbols of the game, such as coins, stars, and mushrooms. I remember the plant with the teeth. Venus flytrap inside the video game, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Yep. The colors and textures are meant to make riders feel like they're inside an animated video game. Mario Kart at Universal Studios definitely attacks your senses, but it is fun. The person who made it possible is Nintendo's game director, Shigeru Miyamoto. He's the creator of some of the most influential and best-selling games in the industry. In addition to Mario Brothers, you got Donkey Kong and The Legend of Zelda. He joined Nintendo straight out of art school in 1977 and says a lot of his inspiration comes from his childhood experiences in nature. I sat down with Miyamoto to learn more about why his characters and games have had such a lasting impact. When it comes to Mario, what do you think accounts for his ability to just be in the hearts of so many people? You know, before when I was asked this question, I um, thought that it's perhaps because um, the game sold well and a lot of people had this experience of playing this game and playing it over and over that it becomes commonplace for them. But now I feel that it's a little bit different in that Mario is kind of like a, your avatar or the person that represents you in this world. And in that, in that experience is, um, you know, because it's been around for so long, an experience that can be shared multi-generations, you know, a father and their um, children can be, uh, share that experience. And I really think another factor is the fact that Mario was created as a character that within an interactive medium. So, for, for example, if I maybe, um, you know, drew Mario as a comic book character, I don't think he would have had this much uh, staying power. 
you know, there was a time when people might have compared um, Mario with, with Mickey Mouse. And, you know, Mickey Mouse is a character that was born, um, you know, 50 years before, before my time and was obviously still around in my generation. And I really felt like uh, Mickey Mouse as a character grew alongside the medium of animation. And in that same vein, I feel that Mario is growing alongside this digital medium. My granddaughter is 13 years old. She's half Japanese. And she told me about a word that she wanted me to ask you about, Kyokan. Feel one with, is what she told me. She wanted me to ask you how that feeling and that word is integrated in the things you create. So that is actually a very important word um, for, for me as well. So as creators, we have an image of what we want to create. But at the same time, I also make sure that I try to put myself in the uh, player's shoes or the other person's shoes and try to kind of really understand what would they want to do? What would they feel in this situation? And to be able to understand it, I think the, the idea to be understood really goes a long way in, in helping the player or the person uh, experiencing this kind of uh, have their imagination take over a big part of this. And so that's why I think doing those monitor tests and really getting the reaction of people who are experiencing things for the first time is really important. Is that why your games have had so much staying power? Yes, I think that's true. I think that it's important to be a, to make a game such that it's really simple to start and enter. But then for people who are really looking for depth, we provide that depth if they are searching for that. That's something that's really important for us. Whether it's an adult or a child, is too much video game playing bad? I don't think it's bad, but only doing video games, I don't think is a very good idea. I've been saying this before too. You know, so I always say, if it's really nice outside, you should go play outside. And I tell that to people who want to be game designers uh, as well. You know, if it's a nice day, you know, go experience outside. Because really, um, I think there's an important factor that it's your personal experience that when it links with the experience of you're having with this virtual um, uh, entertainment, that's when the joy, the fun factor really explodes exponentially. And so I think it's really important to get a lot of different life experiences for both the people who are creating the games as well as people who are playing the game so that they can really be able to fully uh, enjoy the whole experience. One day Nintendo will be existing without you. What do you what do you think Nintendo will be like without you? You know, I really feel like it's um, not going to change. It's probably going to be the same. There's, you know, on the uh, executive team, uh, uh, creators within the company, and also people who create Mario, they all have this sense of what it means to be Nintendo. And so it's not like there's a lot of different opinions that go back and forth. Everyone has an understanding, this uh, kind of shared understanding of what it is to be Nintendo. And so even when there's um, new ideas that come up, there's always the, the fact that it's a new idea, but also the fact that is it a new idea that really uh, has the essence of Nintendo or not. And I think that's something that, um, you know, we have this incredible shared vision, almost a little scary shared vision uh, about this. So I think uh, there won't, it, it's not going to change. Let me bring up a scenario. If the time comes where you are leaving this earth, but you could choose any one of the worlds that you have created to live in for eternity, which world do you choose? So I really love the work environment that I'm in because I get to engage in so many different things. So it'd be great if, you know, 
I could be in an environment where I can change the kind of work I do all the time. So I think it might just be my desk or my bathtub. <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, for your time. Thanks for having us out here. Thank you very much. Nintendo game director Shigeru Miyamoto. So, Layla, when Miyamoto was making Mario's face, did you know that he had to draw a mustache because otherwise you couldn't tell where his nose ended? Oh, no. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a reason not to shave your mustache. This explains a lot yeah, about Mario. <laughs> it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Layla Faldick. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israelis have rioted in the West Bank, setting fire to cars and homes in response to the shooting death of two Israeli settlers by a Palestinian gunman. It's Monday, February 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Switzerland is known for its neutrality, but now it's considering giving its military hardware to Ukraine. Being neutral doesn't mean you're for peace. I would like Switzerland to be more courageous. Also, Microsoft is putting restraints on its new AI chatbot after it exhibited problematic and sometimes insulting behavior. Too short, unathletic, slight, bad posture bad skin, overweight, poor figure, etc. And this hour, we hear about a classified report that reveals the Energy Department believes the COVID pandemic was likely caused by a lab leak in China. Cloudy and in the low 30s today, snow tonight. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says dangerous winds will strike the southern plains today. Some winds could be as strong as a hurricane and gust at more than 80 miles per hour. The same system plowed into the central U.S. late yesterday. Several tornadoes were reported in Oklahoma, including in Norman, a suburb of Oklahoma City. That's where Carly Ochoa says her house was hit. We don't have any power, so we're just using flashlights to kind of see where all the damages and everything. Um, you can definitely see into our attic uh, from our front door. So that's kind of scary. To the west, blizzard warnings are up for the mountains of eastern California. Winds could gust to 60 miles per hour and feet of snow are expected to fall. And to the north and east in the U.S., winter storm advisories and warnings are up from the Great Lakes to Maine. Israel is beefing up its troops in the occupied West Bank after an unprecedented violent riot by Israeli settlers. They were protesting a Palestinian attack in the area that killed two Israelis. And Israeli leaders are walking back a pledge to freeze settlement activity in the area. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Jerusalem. After a Palestinian gunman killed two young Israeli men in the West Bank, hundreds of Israeli settlers, some armed, torched dozens of Palestinian homes and cars. One Palestinian was shot and killed. His family says he just returned a few days ago from volunteering with earthquake relief efforts in Turkey. 
This came as Israeli and Palestinian security officials were meeting in Jordan, pledging to work together to de-escalate tensions after weeks of bloody violence. In that meeting, Israel committed to temporarily freezing new decisions on its controversial settlement enterprise in the West Bank. But under pressure from far-right senior cabinet ministers, the government now seems to be walking back that pledge. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. A new survey shows economists are divided on how they expect the U.S. economy to perform this year, with the Federal Reserve likely to continue raising interest rates. Steve Beckner reports on the findings from the National Association for Business Economics. When it comes to the outlook for growth, jobs, inflation, and interest rates, there is significant divergence among business economists, says the group's president, Julia Coronado. Forecasts for GDP this year range from growth of 1.9 percent to contraction of 1.3 percent, as many still see strong odds for recession. While the consensus forecast is that unemployment will rise a full point from 3.4 percent, some see it rising much more. Inflation on average is expected to dip, but not nearly to the Federal Reserve's 2 percent target. As the Fed tries to curb inflation, some see it raising the key federal funds rate above 5 percent. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. You're listening to NPR News. Cleanup teams in eastern Ohio are going to resume taking contaminated waste from a toxic train derailment. The removal had been suspended after some of the waste was taken to sites in Michigan and Texas. Lawmakers in those states had questioned the removal process. The waste will now be moved to two sites in Ohio. One of China's tech investors is reportedly cooperating with authorities in an investigation more than two weeks after he disappeared. NPR's Emily Fang reports he is presumed to be under detention. In mid-February, China Renaissance said its founder and majority owner, the investor Bao Fan, was unreachable. And in a stock filing to investors, they said his disappearance did not appear to be related to his normal schedule of meetings and travel. His disappearance was shocking, and it sent China Renaissance's shares on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange tumbling by more than a quarter in value. Now, China Renaissance says Bao is working with, quote, certain authorities on an investigation, but it did not say whether it had any contact with Bao and said the company's board was still trying to locate his whereabouts. China has detained several major businessmen in the last decade over anti-corruption and regulatory investigations. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. Another person has been killed in a fresh earthquake today in Turkey and nearly 70 others injured. More than 48,000 people have died in the earthquake and aftershocks that first hit the region three weeks ago. Italian officials say more than 60 migrants have died in a boat wreck off Italy's coast. Scores more people may have perished. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. March begins this week, but winter is still here. A snowstorm will move in tonight. We could get three to six inches by tomorrow in Boston. Worcester could get six to eight inches. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says that compared to most years, his department hasn't had to use as much of its snow budget. He says the cold, wet weather the state has received has made for more icy conditions compared to anything else. We've had a lot of icing calls this year. I, I will tell you, we prefer a straight snowstorm any day to icing, but that's that's the what we've gotten this year. We'll have more on the forecast coming up in a moment.
A landlord trade group is asking the city to release emails related to Mayor Michelle Wu's new rent control proposal. The group Mass Landlords is filing a lawsuit claiming the city isn't being upfront about how the policy was created. Doug Quattrochi is the executive director of Mass Landlords. He says the group wants to know who had the most influence on the proposal. You look at the people who have been named to this Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee, they're predominantly nonprofit and for-profit developers. And so suddenly it looks really like this proposal is, is a handout to developers or a way to, to kind of shunt older properties that a lot of our members operate into the hands of developers. A city spokesperson says the lawsuit is an effort by special interests to block rent control. Any rent control plan would need approval by the city council, state legislature, and the governor. Today, Governor Maura Healey appoints members of a new advisory council on black empowerment. The group will be made up of more than 30 black leaders from across the state. Lowell police will begin wearing body cameras as soon as next month. Department leaders say 30 officers will take part in a pilot program. The cameras will go on automatically when an officer turns on their cruiser lights or their taser. The city's acting police superintendent tells the Lowell Sun the program will last a year and it will be funded by a federal grant. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Bartok and Tchaikovsky at Symphony Hall, March 10th, bostonphil.org. The Bruins will try to make it seven wins in a row tonight as they visit the Edmonton Oilers. The Celtics have a winning streak of their own. They'll try to make it four wins in a row tonight when they play the New York Knicks. Increasing clouds today, temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Snow begins after midnight tonight. The low will be in the 20s. Snow throughout a good part of the day tomorrow. Some of us could see it end as rain. Up to six inches expected in Boston and east of Interstate 95. Six to eight inches in Worcester. The high tomorrow will be in the 30s. It'll be dry on Wednesday. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. The White House called it historic. Top Israeli and Palestinian officials held a rare meeting yesterday and agreed on a plan to cool tensions. But then chaos. The killing of two Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank prompted hundreds of Israelis to go on a violent rampage, setting fire to dozens of Palestinian homes and cars. A Palestinian man was killed. Let's get the latest from NPR's Daniel Estrin. He's in Jerusalem. Daniel, how did things devolve so quickly, considering there was an agreement to cool things down? It's a question of unraveling control on the ground. We have the extreme elements of Israel's right-wing government dictating harsher policies toward Palestinians. On the Palestinian side, officials are losing their ability and their will uh, to clamp down on, on rogue gunmen. 
and we have seen especially bloody violence in the last few weeks. That is the context. So the goal of yesterday's talks in Jordan, which the U.S. orchestrated, was to calm things down, especially before April when Ramadan and Passover coincide. That is a time when tensions tend to escalate. Palestinian officials agreed to work with Israel to maintain law and order in the West Bank, and Israel agreed in writing to this four to six month freeze on any new decisions on settlements in the West Bank. But then some senior far-right members of Israel's government took the reins and said, we are not freezing any settlement activity, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is walking it back. And now, as we see, events on the ground are, are overtaking everything. Yeah, and then things got really ugly yesterday. They did. Um, during these talks in Jordan, a Palestinian gunman in the West Bank killed two young Israeli men in their early 20s. They're West Bank settlers. They were in their car. Just underscoring the idea that the Palestinian Authority is being asked to rein in uh, these gunmen. After the talks ended, Israeli settlers went on a rampage, the likes of which we have never seen. Uh, hundreds of settlers, some of them were armed, some shooting. They torched dozens of Palestinian homes and cars. They destroyed large swaths of, of a village nearby. These fires were enormous. Uh, medics say some Palestinians were injured. One Palestinian shot and killed. And his brother told us he just got back a few days ago from Turkey where he was volunteering with earthquake relief efforts. An Israeli military official told me, yes, the army failed to stop this. Israel uh, has arrested eight settlers connected to those uh, violent riots, released most of them. And then there's ongoing political turmoil within Israel. What's the latest there? That's right. The government is bent on passing legislation, a judicial overhaul to weaken the independence of the courts. There have been massive protests. Uh, we saw this weekend and other weekends. There are calls for a national strike uh, this coming Wednesday. We're seeing some Israelis starting to pull their money out of Israel, fearing a hit to the very strong economy here. Uh, the government so far is, is determined to carry out this plan. And we'll have to see if the, the recent West Bank violence derails that process. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome, May. Microsoft's chatbot has gone rogue. It's professing love to some users. It's calling people ugly. It's spreading false information. NPR's Bobby Allen reports on how this experiment in artificial intelligence tech backfired. Matt O'Brien is a technology reporter for the Associated Press. He was testing out Microsoft's new Bing earlier this month. It's the first ever search engine powered by AI. It also includes a chatbot that can hold text conversations a whole lot like a human. At first, O'Brien found the chatbot impressive. Its answers were fast and it could hold forth on a wide range of subjects. But then it got weird. The chatbot started coming at O'Brien. It finally got to this point where it was saying like, I have a really bad character. Let's just say it didn't stop there. Unstyled hair, ugly face, bad teeth, too short, unathletic, slight, bad posture, bad skin, overweight, poor figure, etc. And then you are also horrible, evil, wicked, terrible, and people compare you to the worst people in history, such as Hitler. Yeah. The bot started this belligerent streak with O'Brien only after he asked it whether Microsoft should pull the plug on the bot, since some of its answers were littered with inaccuracies. As a tech reporter, O'Brien knows the Bing chatbot can't think or feel things, but still he was pretty taken aback at the hostile and defensive tone. You can sort of intellectualize the basics of how it works, but doesn't mean you don't become deeply unsettled by some of the crazy and unhinged things it was saying. 
Many in the Bing tester group, including me, have had strange experiences. For instance, New York Times reporter Kevin Roos published a transcript of a conversation with the bot. The bot called itself Sydney, and it was in love with him. The bot said he was the first person who listened and cared about it. The bot also told Roos he didn't really love his spouse, but that he loved the bot. Here's Roos recounting the incident on the Times podcast, Hard Fork. All I can say is that it was an extremely disturbing experience. I actually, like, couldn't sleep last night because I was thinking about this. As you might imagine, Microsoft Vice President Youssef Mehdi has been following along. This is one of the things we didn't quite predict that people would use the technology in this way. In other words, Mehdi says, when Microsoft was developing the chatbot, they hadn't had hours-long conversations with the AI involving personal questions. Turns out, if you treat a chatbot like a human, it'll start to do some crazy things. These are literally a handful of examples out of many, many thousands, and we're up to now a million tested previews that have come up. So did we expect that we'd find a handful of scenarios where things didn't work properly? Absolutely. But these handful of scenarios have made Microsoft put new limits on the chatbot for those in the tester group. The number of consecutive questions on one topic you can ask are now capped. And to many questions, it now says this. I'm sorry, but I prefer not to continue this conversation. I'm still learning, so I appreciate your understanding and patience. With, of course, a praying hands emoji. Now, you might be wondering, okay, but how and why did this chatbot go off the rails to begin with? I asked Arvin Naraiman this. He's a computer science professor at Princeton. He says chatbots like Microsoft scraped a vast amount of text on the internet and feed it into the AI to learn patterns. That includes data from Reddit, from 4chan, from various dark corners of the internet where people are talking to each other. So the bot has been trained, likely, I would say, not just on, let's say, uh, news articles or Wikipedia, but also all of these unfiltered conversations that are happening online. And while Microsoft said it had worked to make sure the vilest underbelly of the internet wouldn't appear in answers, somehow the chatbot still got pretty ugly fast. But we don't know why exactly, because Microsoft won't discuss what data trained the bot, nor what particular information may have made it go rogue. They're being so secretive in part because there is now an AI arms race among big tech companies. Microsoft and its competitors, Google, Meta and Amazon and others, are locked in a fierce battle over who will dominate the AI future. And chatbots are just one area where this rivalry is playing out. Norman says Microsoft should have kept its chatbot in the lab a little longer. It seems very clear that the way they released it you know, is not a responsible way to release a product that is going to interact with so many people on such a scale. Microsoft's Medi, though, says the company doesn't regret its decision to put the chatbot into the wild. There's only so much you can find when you test in sort of a lab. You have to actually go out, start to test it with customers to find these types of scenarios. It is true that scenarios like the one New York Times reporter Roos found himself in were probably hard to predict. At one point, Roos tried to switch topics and have the bot help him buy a rake. And it offered a detailed list of things to consider when rake shopping. Great. But then the bot got tender again. It wrote, I just want to love you and be loved by you. Bobby Allen, NPR News. <laughs> 50 years ago today, around 200 activists and members of the Ogallala Lakota tribe occupied a small town that few people had heard of until it appeared on outlets such as NBC News. We also have tonight one of the strangest stories to come along in a long time. A group of American Indians has taken over the town of Wounded Knee in South Dakota, and they have been holding it for nearly a whole day. 
They would go on to hold the town for 71 days. The activists from the American Indian Movement were protesting poverty on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Their grievances included decades of religious suppression and broken promises from the U.S. government. Kevin McKeerman was a rookie reporter assigned to cover the story for NPR. People were in the gutter and they wanted to get up. They wanted to do something. They were desperate. More than 80 years earlier, the town had been the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre. The 1890 massacre victims, they were killed because of their religion. The government had sent out, well, the White House had really sent out 5,000 combat troops to stamp out a ritual called the ghost dance. In February 1973, as the Wounded Knee occupation intensified, the federal government banned reporters from covering it. They thought that the press was kind of a oxygen, and if you choked off the oxygen, the confrontation would come to an end. Of course, I don't think that they understood very much about Indian country. Two protesters smuggled McKeerman into Wounded Knee. They were afraid, as they expressed it, of another massacre once the press was gone and there were no witnesses. Kierman captured hours of recordings that served as a counterpoint to the narrative from the Department of Justice. The feds said this is an armed insurrection. You know, it's criminal. The real story, in my mind, were the religious ceremonies that took place inside Wounded Knee. And this became a kind of laboratory for the hundreds who came there, getting their religion back, learning some of their language, which led to a revival. McKeerman's recordings are now part of a documentary called From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, A Reporter's Journey. South Dakota Public Broadcasting airs the film tonight to mark the occupation's 50th anniversary. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, California is experiencing record amounts of rain and snow, and the state is supposed to get more wet weather this week. It's 820. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. It'll grow increasingly cloudy today, and we'll have a high of only 32. The snow arrives tonight. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery 
at DanaFarber.org slash stories. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. California is getting historic amounts of rain and snow this winter. Parts of Southern California were turned into a winter wonderland over the weekend after a winter storm dumped several feet of snow. In addition to the snowfall and higher elevations, the storm also brought several inches of rain to the area. And there's more wet weather in store this week, but the state remains under a drought emergency. Haley Smith covers drought and climate change for the L.A. Times. Haley, I took one look outside this weekend and decided to stay in and watch my wife bake bread. So tell us about the conditions and its impact on all the residents here in L.A. So this was a low pressure system that started in the Gulf of Alaska and kind of slowly carved a path down through California. And I would say it was somewhat of a novel storm in Northern California, but it was a historic storm here in Southern California. And that's for a few reasons. One, we saw a lot of record-setting precipitation, including really high rain rates. The weather station at the Burbank Airport measured 4.6 inches of rain on Friday, which wasn't just a record for the day, but it was actually its fifth wettest day ever. But even more than the rain, what made this storm so historic was the snow. We were seeing snow at elevations as low as 1,500 or even 1,000 feet, which is exceptionally low. For reference, the Hollywood sign is at an elevation of about 1,500 feet, and there were flurries there, and some people even made snowballs. The downside of all that is that hundreds of thousands of people are still without power. We've seen down trees, rock slides, debris flows, a number of dangerous water rescues. So the storm did do some damage. Drought, though. Here's the thing. California has been in a drought seemingly forever. So how much of an impact is uh, all of this doing on that? That is definitely a question on everyone's mind. Our reservoirs are notably fuller, and we've had record snowpack. We're at 173% of normal snowpack statewide right now. However, California's water supply does not only come from surface water. Groundwater didn't really benefit much from these storms, and neither did the Colorado River, which is a huge part of Southern California's water supply. So at this point, most experts and officials are saying it would still be premature to declare the drought over, but we are in much better shape than we were two months ago. Okay, now more rain and snow is in the forecast for this week. I saw a lot of people stuck in flooding on the streets of L.A. Uh, and in other parts of California, too. So what should Californians prepare for? It should be weaker than what we saw this past week, but we still would advise people prepare for potential power outages and the hazards that I mentioned earlier. And of course, you know, not drive in standing water, learn how to turn on your windshield wipers and probably avoid mountain passes that are still stuck and snowed out. Haley Smith covers drought and climate change for the L.A. Times. Haley, thanks. Thanks so much. 
California isn't the only state where extreme weather events are increasingly costly. Last year alone, scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration looked at the whole country and found 18 weather and climate disasters where losses topped $1 billion each. Susan Joy Hassel is a director of the nonprofit Climate Communication, and she spent the past three decades working to help people understand climate change. Susan, I actually just said the word or the term climate change. You don't use that. You prefer climate disruption. Why do words matter here? Well, words really do matter because they affect the way we think and feel about things. So, for example, some people are calling this crazy wild weather we're seeing a new normal, but I call it a new abnormal. We shouldn't, there's nothing normal about it. We shouldn't normalize it and come to accept it. It should alarm us enough to spur more urgent climate action. You know, I also call what some people call natural disasters. In many cases, these weather disasters are unnatural disasters. And you know, when you call something the new normal, it implies that we've come to a new steady state, but this is only the beginning. It's gonna keep getting worse until we eliminate heat trapping pollution. Yeah, and change uh, certainly feels a lot softer than disruption. Yeah, it, it, you know, any kind of climate change for any reason is referred to as climate change. This is now human-caused climate disruption. Now, as, as more people experience the costs of extreme weather, are you hopeful at all that there will be maybe more of an effort to address uh, this climate emergency? Well, absolutely. This is really now up close and personal. You know, this is not projections of the future. We're seeing it right outside our windows. And most Americans are now experiencing these kinds of disasters, floods, wildfires, and, and the like, 70% of Americans have experienced those things in the last few years. And they're coming to recognize that because of those, that extreme weather and the exacerbation of that, that this really is a crisis. And I think they are more willing and want to uh, address it. The good news is that they like clean energy and that's the main solution. And it took you know, billions and billions in losses and actual losses to people's pocketbook to actually get to the point where I think we're starting to care a little bit more about this, right? And it took, it took that, right? And, and not maybe just some science. <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, people who think that if we just explain the science a little better and more clearly are like the typical Ameri American tourist in, in Paris, thinking that if they just speak English more loudly and slowly, <laughs> that people will understand them. But, you know, it's not about that. It's about people experiencing this on their own. But, you know, the good news is really that tackling climate change does not need to be about sacrifice and deprivation. It can be op about opportunity and improvement in our lives, our health, and our well-being. It can be a story of humans flourishing in a post-fossil fuel age. So, Susan, how do you think scientists and policymakers should be talking about the issue? Because for a lot of people, it feels overwhelming, like they can't do enough, even if they do something in their lives. So how do you think this, this needs to be communicated? I've got about 30 seconds left. Yeah. Well, you know, these are things that we want to do anyway. Doing what we need to do to preserve a livable climate will also give us cleaner air, friendlier, more walkable communities. We'll send fewer kids to the hospital with asthma. It'll be the best thing for our personal health as well as our planetary health. That's Susan Joy Hassel of Climate Communication. Susan, thank you. Thank you, A.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a classified report indicates that the Energy Department believes the COVID pandemic was likely caused by a leak from a Chinese lab. It's 829. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Norfolk Southern is expected to resume hauling contaminated waste away from East Palestine, Ohio today. Liquid and solid waste from this month's fiery freight train derailment is slated to be taken to two sites within the state. Shipments of waste to Michigan and Texas were halted after officials in those states complained. More than a dozen states in the U.S. are under advisories or warnings for wintry weather. Snow and ice will be the issue for millions of people in parts of Washington, Oregon, California and Nevada, as well as the upper Midwest and much of New England. A large area of the central U.S. is under a wind advisory. It extends from Kansas to northern Georgia, northward to West Virginia. Grayson Wheeler with member station KOSU says strong winds did damage in Oklahoma yesterday. As the line of storms moved across the plains, it generated around 50 tornado warnings in Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, reportedly including a damaging tornado that stayed on the ground for 15 miles in central Oklahoma. The National Weather Service confirmed 114 mile per hour winds in the Texas panhandle. The storm blew over power lines, trees, and tractor trailers, but injury numbers are unclear. Utility companies say more than 70,000 households in Oklahoma lost power last night, mostly in the western and central parts of the state. For NPR News, I'm Grayson Wheeler in Oklahoma City. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This week, Governor Maura Healey unveils her budget recommendation for the fiscal year beginning July 1st. WBUR Steve Brown has a preview. Healy got an extra eight weeks to craft her budget since she just assumed office last month. Her chief budget writer, Secretary of Administration and Finance Matthew Gorkowitz, says the governor mentioned several of her priorities during her inaugural address. I think you'll see that the budget we released will, in fact, make good on a lot of those promises. And in many cases, it sets the foundation for what we're going to do over the next four years. One proposal will call for increased funding for the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, a quasi-state agency that helps developers incorporate green technologies into building projects to lower the structure's carbon footprint and help the state reach carbon reduction targets. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Worcester police officers will start wearing body cameras today. 300 officers will use the technology. Videos from the cameras will be uploaded to a website at the end of each shift. The department says the program will improve safety and accountability. An astronaut from Cohasset is still on Earth this morning after SpaceX and NASA called off a rocket launch at the last minute. Stephen Bowen is commanding a crew of three other astronauts on a flight to the International Space Station. NASA says it stopped the blastoff from Kennedy Space Center in Florida because of technical issues. Another attempt could come as soon as tomorrow. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. The Celtics will be in New York tonight to take on the Knicks. The Bruins are in Edmonton to skate with the Oilers. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Rays 7-6. to The Sox will play the Twins this afternoon. Clouds move in throughout the day today, and it'll be cold with a high of only 32. 
22. Tonight, temperatures only fall a little to a low of 29. Overnight, snow. By tomorrow morning, up to 6 inches possible around Boston and up to 8 inches in the Worcester area. The snow continues into tomorrow. We may get another inch. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 37. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston at 833. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Department of Energy is concluding that COVID-19 might have been leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. But there are caveats. The Wall Street Journal's Michael Gordon broke this story. So before we get to the Department of Energy report, let's talk about why it's taken so long and been so challenging to get to the bottom of where COVID-19 came from. Well, uh, a big problem is the Chinese aren't cooperating. Mm. They're not being transparent. They haven't shared data from their laboratories in uh, Wuhan, which is a center of coronavirus research, uh, nor did they fully cooperate with the World Health Organization when it sent a team there to inspect it and sort of sent a team back. So you're trying to decipher a mystery without the cooperation of the nation where the uh, virus emerged, and that's proven to be a very difficult challenge for the U.S. intelligence community. Now, the Energy Department says that its finding that COVID might have leaked from a laboratory was made with, quote, low confidence. So is this report fully conclusive? What does this mean? Well, uh, let's step back a bit. I mean, what happened was President Biden in uh, May of uh, 2021 um, ordered an investigation into the origins of COVID by the intelligence community. And there were a number of different agencies involved in this, the CIA, the DIA, Energy, FBI, and the like. And they came forth with a report that was pretty much of a split decision. And in this story that I broke with my colleague Warren Strobel, uh, we um, determined that the FBI was an agency that had assessed it leaked from the lab with moderate confidence. There were four other agencies that said it probably arose naturally from an animal with low confidence. And at that time, the Energy Department was agnostic. It didn't have a position one way or the other. What's happened is they've done an update to this report, and the Energy Department's position has shifted. Mm-hmm. It's gone from saying, well, we don't know, to we think it's most likely it did come from a lab, though with low confidence. So they've now aligned with the FBI in this um intelligence community assessment that was provided to the White House uh, last month, and but not acknowledged publicly. So different findings by different agencies. Why are multiple agencies conducting separate investigations like this? Well, uh, the intelligence community consists of 18 different uh, agencies, yeah. and eight of them were involved in this because they had the requisite um, expertise. Um, so it was intended to be a whole-of-community effort. The reason um, the FBI and the Energy Department are significant is the FBI 
it's not just a bunch of uh, gumshoes. They have scientists. They have a lab at Fort Detrick, which does bioforensic research. And the Energy Department oversees the national laboratories, like Lawrence Livermore, which invented fusion. They have scientists uh, under their uh, command. And so they're able to look at this from um, more so than other agencies from a scientific perspective. And if China's not cooperating, then where is the Department of Energy getting its information? Well, they won't say. I mean, they won't say what the intelligence information is. And we know it's not conclusive. We know it's they haven't established um, a cataclysmic episode and linked it directly to the outbreak in Wuhan. But uh, the alternative theory that it leapt from an animal, uh, well, in the in past three years, they've never found a host animal. So the absence of evidence for the alternative theory and the nature of the research in Wuhan is what's pointing to this conclusion. Michael Gordon is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you. Switzerland's parliament today will consider something that was once unthinkable, a retooling of Swiss neutrality. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, the reason is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Geneva is surrounded by the snow-capped Alps. Boats ply the gentle waters of its Lac Le Mans. Over the last century, this tranquil city has been the setting for peace talks and arms treaties. It's where the Red Cross was born and the Geneva Conventions penned. Switzerland has played an outsized role in resolving world conflicts because of its neutrality. The Butchwalders are strolling along the lake. 90-year-old Claude Butchwalder remembers his country's neutrality in World War II. This time, it's joined EU economic sanctions against Russia. I don't any longer believe in the neutrality because we are on one side, you see. Is this good or bad? It's both. Switzerland has denied permission to Germany, Spain, and Denmark to re-export Swiss-made weapons to Ukraine, but the Swiss parliament could vote to waive those re-export restrictions in its spring session, which convenes today. I meet Swiss socialist parliamentarian Laurence Felman-Riel in a Geneva cafe. She'll be part of the intense debate. She says her country backed economic sanctions because neutrality doesn't mean indifference but allowing Swiss-made weapons onto the battlefield is another matter. It's a more touchy problem. We are socialists who are normally on the pacifist side. That's the, the problem is that should we make an exception because Ukraine has been attacked or that we must be very strict on saying no. A sanction is a political decision, but clearly it's an important political decision. Cheni Nagy specializes in foreign policy at the University of Geneva. He says Switzerland can technically remain neutral under international law while applying sanctions or dropping re-export bans, though it may not be perceived that way. If you decide to align on these EU and US sanctions regime, you are basically seen as an aligned country in the eyes of Russia, in the eyes of China. Swiss neutrality dates back to the 1815 Congress of Vienna, which ended the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. It was further defined in the Hague Convention of 1907, which says a neutral state can't directly export weapons to a country at war. So we are neutral or we are not. There's not a little bit of neutrality. Yves Niedegger is a parliamentarian with the conservative Swiss People's Party, the largest in parliament. He says neutrality is an integral part of Swiss identity and should not be whittled away. His party wants to hold a referendum to inscribe a clear definition of neutrality in the Swiss constitution. 
in my opinion, we would lose a lot because this tiny, almost insignificant country on the Alps has a tremendously strong soft power and influence over the world. In Geneva's old city, parents watch their children ride a merry-go-round. Mother Alice Denoyer is among the 55% of Swiss who think third countries should be allowed to send Swiss weapons to Ukraine. Being neutral doesn't mean you're for peace, she says. I would like Switzerland to be more courageous. Hello, how are you? But Marco Sassoli says in the end, it doesn't really matter what the Swiss think. He's a professor of international law at the University of Geneva. What counts is not whether you believe you're neutral, but whether the others believe. And both President Biden and President Putin declared Switzerland is no longer neutral. <laughs> Biden was happy and Putin was angry, he says, but they agreed. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Geneva. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a review of the movie Cocaine Bear. It's the truish story of a black bear who ate a bunch of cocaine. So there's that. Now the forecast, a winter weather advisory goes into effect for eastern Massachusetts tonight with a winter storm warning for central and western Mass. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now with the latest on the forecast. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Rupa. So it sounds like it's going to be a pretty gloomy day today, cloudy with a high of only freezing. But when do things get really bad? The snow actually doesn't arrive until about midnight tonight in Boston, give or take, maybe a little bit earlier in central Massachusetts. But once it starts, it gets going and it's going to snow steadily overnight tonight through the day tomorrow and wrap up early tomorrow evening. When will the worst of it be? You know, I'd say the worst is probably pre-dawn tomorrow through the morning commute. So that's why I say the morning commute for tomorrow will be kind of the toughest travel. With the temperature rising just a little bit tomorrow afternoon, I think the road conditions will improve, obviously, with treatment and plows out. Uh, I expect some gradual improvement through the afternoon and evening. So I'd say the height of the storm is tomorrow morning in general. So how much snow should we expect from the storm? I think this will end up being a widespread three to six inch snowfall event for most of eastern Massachusetts, maybe a little bit less on the Cape, probably about one to three inches there because we'll mix with some rain. Um, you know, Boston, I put the over under at about four inches. I think that by late in the day tomorrow, right along the immediate coast, we may mix with some raindrops very briefly, but this is a mainly snow event. It'll pile up. Um, the jackpot zone, so to speak, will be north and west of Boston, Worcester Hills, Route 2 Quarter, southwest New Hampshire, where we may see some six to eight inch totals. And then while we have you, are any more storms coming our way as we get into March? I mean, it's March, right? Don't you love March in New England? Yes, <laughs> this is um, this is a very active pattern. It looks like Later Wednesday, there may be a rain shower. Thursday, there could be a quick rain shower in the morning. But late Friday into Saturday, it looks like another significant storm may be heading our way, um, which will likely be a burst of snow changing over to some mix and then perhaps rain 
uh, depending on the track, kind of similar to the last one where we had like the rain snow line right around the Mass Turnpike, but it started as some snow. So that's certainly one to watch. Uh, north of the pike, it could be a significant event in terms of snowfall accumulation, probably an arrival late on uh, Friday and then lingering into the start of the weekend. So we'll keep an eye on that one. So maybe we'll be talking again soon. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce, thanks so much. Thank you, Rupa. Have a good one. Get updates on Danielle's forecast all day here on 90.9 WBUR and at WBUR.org or on the WBUR app on your phone. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston at 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer. Daily swim lessons in heated pools and A.C. for indoors, maplewoodyearround.com and Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm A. Martinez. Hollywood has a new star, and it's a bear, a really agitated bear. Okay, why am I dancing around this? It's a bear high on cocaine that goes on a killing spree. You're safe. Bears can't climb trees. Of course I can! It's loosely based on a true story, and it's titled, appropriately enough, Cocaine Bear. It mauled the competition this weekend, coming in second with $23 million in box office earnings. Apex Predator. High on cocaine. Ah! Out of his mind. So awesome. Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast has seen it. Her heart rate has returned to normal. She's here, Linda. To know that there's even a tiny shred of fact about a black comedy horror film called Cocaine Bear is kind of amazing. Give us a short summary. Well, the only part of this that is real is that in 1985, there was a drug smuggling mishap that resulted in a bunch of bags of cocaine getting dumped in uh, the forest. And a black bear found it and ate it, and unfortunately, the bear died. This movie presumes instead of the bear dying, the bear goes on a wild, mauling, killing spree uh, as various people come through the forest looking for the cocaine or looking for the bear. Now, I'm looking forward to uh, your examination of the many layers of metaphor here. Yeah, there aren't any. Um, the The thing that, about cocaine bear that, that, that I like so much, um, and I do mean that, is that they used to call action movies like towards the danger, like under suspicion. But now they've just decided we're just going to call it cocaine bear. And it's the same thing. There was a movie earlier this year about a plane that went down and they just called it plane. And I think there is a a sense that like, let's just say what we're doing. It's like uh, when a, a store has a store brand kind of item. Right. Absolutely. As opposed to like the brand name. Absolutely. Just say what the thing is. And that way people feel like they are getting their money's worth because it's hard for me to imagine somebody being like, I want to go see Cocaine Bear and not feeling like they got Cocaine Bear. Uh, Elizabeth Banks, she's the director here. She also directed uh, one of the Pitch Perfect movies and also one of the Charlie's Angels movies. Uh, what did she bring to this? I think she has a genuinely kind of offbeat sensibility. She is also a, a, an actress who's done lots of comedy. And I think that she brings a certain wacky sensibility, as do the producers, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who have also worked on movies like The Lego Movie and uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and stuff like that. They also take a lot of movies that seem like bad ideas and make them into good ideas. 
Now, let me ask you this, because my 30-something-year-old son sees all of the 80s slasher movies with his daughters, my granddaughters. So is this movie, Cocaine Bear, something I could take a 13- and a 9-year-old to see? Well, it is an R-rated movie, and it is gory. I think it is important to think of this as more like a slasher movie than like an action movie. Um, You will see a lot of blood and innards and things like that. Everybody feels differently about that. I would not have been allowed to see this when I was nine, but many, many nine-year-olds have seen movies like this. Now, one more thing really quick, Linda. Uh, I imagine it's probably more fun to see it with as many people as you can. Absolutely. I think you have to see this movie with at least five people. If you go to a theater and see it, that's fine. If you're going to see it later, invite some people over because sitting there by yourself watching Cocaine Bear might make you feel silly or lonely. Linda Holmes talks about all this stuff in much greater detail at the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. Linda, thanks. Oh, thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. This is 90.9 WBOR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the future of retirement savings after a disastrous 2022. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Peter O'Dowd is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Arupa. Good morning. So um, we're going to start today uh, speaking to a doctor in Syria who's organized a group of orthopedic surgeons and even psychiatrists. Uh, They're on the ground providing care in the earthquake zone. You know, it's been um, exactly three weeks now since the earthquake and the death toll in Turkey and Syria has gone past 50,000 people Mm -hmm. and a lot of Syrians feel forgotten. So we'll try to touch base in Syria. And then uh, farmer and rancher Bryce Andrews is from Montana and he inherited a Smith & Wesson revolver from his grandfather. But this is this is interesting. The gift started to weigh on his conscience. And so he wrote a book about his decision literally to forge the gun into something else. He found a black tool, a blacksmith rather, and, and made a tool that would help him rebuild the Western landscape where he lived that had been destroyed for generations by violence. That gun, that book is called Holding Fire, and it's super interesting. We'll speak with Bryce. Sounds very symbolic. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. You're welcome. That's here and now today at noon. Right now it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is in Studio 2. So much to talk about. On the top of the list, her proposal to cap Boston rent increases. But there's also a controversial school bus contract, a new night czar, loss of services at Mass and Cass, and more. It's Mondays with the Mayor on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Where so much of that retirement money went in 2022, not up. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. David Brancaccio here. 2022 was a rough ride for those saving for retirement. Fidelity Investments, a leading manager of these accounts, reports the average 401k account through companies lost more than a fifth of its value last year, 21%. Poof. Individual accounts IRAs were down 23%. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports. 
Average account balances for both 401ks and IRAs fell to around $104,000 in 2022, according to Fidelity Investments, a marketplace underwriter. That low level of retirement savings? It'll scare the daylights out of you. At least if you're a financial analyst like Greg McBride at Bankrate.com. Americans generally are undersaved for not just emergencies, but retirement as well. To cope with emergencies, people often raid their retirement funds. There was an uptick in loans and hardship withdrawals from retirement plans. With inflation moving to 40-year highs, that has shredded a lot of household budgets. But these early withdrawals are costly, says Robert Frick at Navy Federal Credit Union. Penalties are severe. And once you withdraw that money, you pay the penalty, and then you can only gradually add it back in most cases. Meaning, says Frick, you lose out on future investment gains once the stock market turns around again. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. S&P futures are up eight-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up just under one percent just over a half hour here before the opening bell. Last week, indexes posted their biggest drop since December, but it's a new week. We're expecting more evidence of an economic rebound in China since it lifted COVID containment measures. Economists expect China's factory activity to have rebounded in January. We'll get that data on Wednesday. All those factories need power, and a new report finds that China is doubling down on an energy source that produces a lot of climate-altering carbon dioxide. Power plants fed by coal. Marketplace's Nova Safo has that. The report by the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air and the Global Energy Monitor says China approved six times as many coal-fueled power plant projects last year than the rest of the world combined. At the same time, Chinese authorities slowed the pace of retirements of older coal-powered plants. Electricity demand in China has been increasing. The report says last year's investment in coal power is the country's most substantial in seven years. And many of the plant projects had their permits fast-tracked so construction could start within months. Those plants, once completed, could begin adding power to China's electricity grid within a few years. But the report says China could still reduce its carbon emissions if power demand stabilizes or slows, and if the country continues to invest in clean power generation. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. It'll soon be a little cheaper for many low- and middle-income people and first-time homeowners to buy a house. The Biden administration just announced it is lowering rates on the mortgage insurance people have to pay when they take out a loan backed by the Federal Housing Administration. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. Lenders look at three main things when deciding whether to give you a mortgage. One is, do you have enough income to cover the monthly mortgage payment? Second, do you have enough savings to pay for the down payment? And third, is your credit score good enough that you can qualify for a mortgage? Jenny Schutz at the Brookings Institution says if you don't have all three, it can be hard to become a homeowner, but not impossible if you apply for a mortgage backed by the Federal Housing Administration. FHA tends to target households who are sort of on the margin on often all three of those categories. If you have a fair amount of debt or a low credit score, it's harder to get a conventional mortgage, but you might have a better chance at an FHA-backed loan. If you go that route, you'll also be required to get mortgage insurance, which adds to your total monthly payment. This change will reduce that insurance premium by maybe $600 to $1,000 a year or so, depending on the size of your loan. This isn't going to make the difference for somebody who has no money to pay for a down payment or somebody who really can't afford the mortgage payment. But if you're sort of on the margin, 
then saving $50 or $100 a month might make the difference between being able to buy and not being able to buy, she says. That's especially true for low-income buyers and first-time buyers in less expensive housing markets. Every dollar makes a difference. David Dworkin is with the nonprofit National Housing Conference. While $1,000 a year may not seem like a lot, it has an impact in two ways. One is that there's more money to support your basic expenses and to repair things that go wrong in a house. And two, it may also help some people qualify for a mortgage in the first place. Because we're also looking at how much you're paying for your housing expenses compared to how much you earn. And that $1,000 a year can help with that calculation. Which means, Dworkin says, more people should be able to become homeowners as a result of this change. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. One of the tougher issues for Britain and the EU is what to do about trade across the historically fraught border between EU member Ireland and Northern Ireland, now out of the EU. European and UK leaders are meeting on this today. The BBC's Katja Adler reports. For Rishi Sunak, a deal avoids a looming trade war with Brussels, the UK's biggest trade partner, after the government previously threatened to unilaterally override the original Northern Ireland agreement. Better relations also open up new possibilities, like UK access to the EU's respected Horizon Research Programme, a financial services agreement and improved arrangements with France to stop people smugglers. Brussels, meanwhile, yearns for a friendlier post-Brexit era with the UK. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has served as a reminder of shared values and priorities. Katya Adler is with our editorial partners, the BBC, and a Wall Street Journal story this morning is another reminder not to confuse your company with your friend. It explores how some firms get rid of workers without calling them layoffs. One way is to ratchet up subpar performance reviews so people feel unwelcome. Another approach goes like this. Sure, you can keep your job, but to do so, you'll have to move with your family far away. People who quit wouldn't get severance and may not be eligible for unemployment benefits. The reporting also suggests some companies may not want to admit they're downsizing. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Cloudy and low 30s today, upper 20s tonight, then overnight snow. It's 29 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Black video game developers make up a tiny percentage of people working in the industry. I don't think we'll ever be able to fix the original sin of these massive studios actively not hiring black people. We can never make up for the lost time. But they are finding success despite the barriers. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.